Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to the EcoFlow podcast, and I'm your host, Jin. And today I have here with me Dr. Charles Cabell, who's an associate professor of global and regional studies at Toyo University. And his interests include cultural studies, Japanese literature, and educational practice and theory. Charles holds a PhD in modern Japanese literature from the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilization at Harvard University and did his bachelor's and master's at University of Alabama and Penn State University. Most recently, as the acting president of the International Association for Japan Studies, he's been involved in pioneering a new form of academic conference called Yonaoshi, Why Not Remake the World, one that combines participant-centered, creatively interactive learning events with entertainment in order to bring together students, activists, scholars, and concerned lay people to actively engage in issues connected with equity and social justice in the context of the ecological, ecological and climate crisis. So I met Chao Sensei during my senior year at Waseda University when I took his course titled Politics of Translation. And it was one of the most interesting courses I took. And at the same time, I was also very much inspired by his interactive way of teaching. So I think the way Charles Sensei taught us was a very Socratic method of teaching in which we had a question and answer and um, a lot of presentations, projects we had to research beforehand to come and discuss with students in class. And we read a lot of Japanese literature pieces from well-known writers such as Natsume Soseki, Moriogai, and Izumi Kyoka. And we analyzed them in relation to the social context and our modern world today exploring their interconnection of languages, culture, gender, race, power, and colonization. In 2019, I was invited by Chao Sensei to give a presentation and moderate a panel discussion in his newly founded conference, which I've just mentioned, Yonaoshi. And it was also during that time that I came up with the title EcoFlow Renaissance for my presentation, which eventually evolved into this EcoFlow podcast and EcoFlow channel. And just to explain a little bit about EcoFlow, the word EcoFlow is a combination of my personal ideals for a utopian future society. Um, one that combines you know, my love for nature and my hope for an economy that focuses on people's personal well-being instead of economic growth. And so this became the title of this podcast, um, EcoFlow. And I've always wanted to invite Charles Cavell um, on this podcast because... He's the one who inspired me to start, you know, the work that I'm doing right now and also to discuss some of the issues that we're both passionate about. Uh, well, uh, thank you for inviting me, Gene. Uh, I'm uh, really inspired by all of the things you've done since graduating uh, from Waseda. And uh, so, yeah, I feel like uh, I have a great deal to uh, learn from you. And uh, whenever I uh, come in contact with you, I feel this energy flowing from you to me, which is uh, always uh, invigorates me. And then it um, helps me to try to uh, pass that on to the students who are uh, in university now and to use you as an example of the kind of possibilities that are open to them. So thank you for uh, your uh, passionate involvement and uh, kind of uh, presenting a pathway for other students to follow. Thank you, Charles. You know, last year during my interview with Qinghua, they asked me a question about the projects that I was doing in Ladakh. 
how do you combine your training in the liberal arts education with providing education to students in rural parts of the Himalayas? Um, what you learn in classes to what you apply in reality. And at that time, um, I was reminded of your class, especially because you talk a lot about indigenous wisdom. And so I told them that I took this class with Charles Cavell Sensei before about, <laughs> <laughs> about the indigenous wisdom of Ainu people, of the um, Okinawan people. And, you know, when I go to Ladakh and I saw the, the same similar indigenous culture um, where they practice a circular economy, you know, I could relate that to what I learned in your class and we could have sort of a discussion on, on the similarities and differences and how this positive values could also be transmitted into our modern society. So I want to thank you for inspiring me in, in this work. <laughs> but before going further, I just want to um, invite you to share a little bit about your story, the story of your life, and also the work you're pursuing right now. You know, what is your ikigai, if in Japanese term? <laughs> Well, uh, my background is I'm from Alabama, which uh, now I would kind of describe as, of course, the heart of uh, slavery in the United States. And I think the United States is the largest empire in the world. So I kind of grew up in the middle of empire, in the middle of uh, white supremacy and patriarchy. And uh, I wouldn't say that uh, I had this understanding that I have now growing up, but I could sense that uh, something seemed a little bit uh, not right about uh, the society in terms of people being blocked off from one another and uh, inequality and of course the racism, which is evident around. And I, I felt growing up that I was also kind of missing things. I think I, I would say that's unfortunate now, but I wasn't really very uh, happy about my community and just wanted to get away from it at some level. It mm -hmm. seemed kind of claustrophobic. So then I came to Japan. And then uh, I think a lot of my uh, learning since coming to Japan has been a combination of learning and unlearning, the way I would describe it now, which is, uh, so when you mention indigenous, I think indigenous are some of our best teachers for helping us unlearn our Eurocentric education and our kind of what we center is important and a lot of the connection of knowledge with uh, corporate value that unfortunately I think is con conveyed to us in so many different ways. Uh, so my uh, Ikigai now, I guess, what makes me uh, feel happy to be alive is, uh, well, I think many students uh, are perhaps uh, in uh, similar situations in different ways, trying to understand their own power, what they can do and what communities they do belong to or that they can form. And I think more and more people sense that our economic system, as you described, uh, based on economic growth is uh, collapsing. And so trying to help people and uh, also to think myself about the alternatives and how we can build that together or how it can help other people feel empowered to build that with others are some of the things that motivate me. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that you've changed my perspective on, especially in 2019 when I attended your Yonaoshi, was that you know when I first graduated from Waseda, I was initially considering a path of an academia, you know, a PhD perhaps. 
but then I I also realized and, and noticed that a lot of the things happening in the academic world was that people are always just writing all kinds of publications and mm-hmm. they, there's a sense of disconnect from the actual world and when you started the Yonaoshi and you brought together all these different professors academias from different universities I there was a paradigm shift that academias could also do something for the society and they have the impact they have the direct impact on students and so recently I'm also reconsidering the path of an academia again <laughs> um, you know this pandemic has has changed um, a lot of our life all of my projects in the Himalayas has been sabotaged and of course I'm pursuing my master's program in China very soon um, but you know I want to dive deep into your um, the time before you came to Japan a little bit because you, you just <laughs> jumped straight from you know your aversion towards the the negative values in, in the southern states of America and you went straight to you you know you go into Japan but of course before that a, perhaps a very important turning point on why you would go to Japan is that you actually studied um, Japanese literature in university if I'm if I'm not mistaken so what sparked your curiosity in East Asia or in Japan when you were when you were young? I was wondering. My uh, first contacts probably with uh, Japan were with the Japanese students that I met as a freshman. And uh, so I lived in a dorm and uh, there were seven or eight Japanese students who happened to be on my floor. And for some reason, I just uh, wound up being very good friends with them. And I was already, as I mentioned, kind of looking for an exit for my hometown and uh, home state and so then the as i I, as i got to know them personally uh, i didn't really want to go to uh, europe i already knew because uh, i wanted to find something outside of uh, western culture so yeah basically when i first came to japan i'm kind of ashamed to admit i was uh entirely ignorant of uh, everything japanese uh I was uh, really interested in literature and uh, world literature before I came to Japan, but I didn't know uh, Japanese literature very much at all. So it, my original interest came through the language, uh, studying the language, then became a kind of a series of questions and then trying to read and then trying to read literature and then really enjoying the literature. So uh, other than just uh, you know popular culture, uh, there wasn't, uh, an encounter that made me really kind of tie into Japan until I was actually in Japan. And once I found myself in Japan, then I hitchhiked around the country a couple of times. And that I think really cemented my uh, connection because I met people from all different classes and walks of life. And they took me into their homes and bought me meals. And uh, and so that was a kind of a wonderful experience that I'd never had before. Uh, And it was nice to go from a very wealthy household to a very poor household and just two different days. And uh, it uh, was freeing for me because uh, I think uh, because I came from a very class oriented society in uh, America, I could always tell someone's education and social level after a few sentences, you know, you just have a conversation, you can tell what someone's level of education is or their wealth in some ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in Japan, I couldn't. Uh, So everybody seemed radically equal to me, 
when I was first in Japan and also uh, comfortably above me because they were all, of course, uh, masters of Japanese and I was just a, a novice. So that was nice not to be have to belong to any kind of uh, real sense of uh, class or to figure out where people belonged, but to be to really be able to see everybody as your teacher, uh, no matter what their income level was. That's how I really appreciated that way of being able to interact uh, where everybody that you actually met could always teach you something. Um, did you go to Japan <clears throat> first and then come back to study your PhD or? Yes, yeah, so I, I, I began as an exchange student at uh, Kansai Gai Kokugo Daigaku in uh, Osaka. And then I uh, went back to the States and then I went on another exchange to England and I studied Spanish. And then I took a job with the JET program in Ibaraki, working with uh, English teachers. And I did that for a year. And then I got a scholarship to study at Chiba University for a year. And then I went back to the States and got a master's in comparative literature in Spanish and Japanese literature. And then I got a PhD at Harvard and I worked for uh, a few years in the States. And then I came to Toyo University. Um, besides teaching at Toyo full-time, um, Charles is also teaching at Waseda as a, a part-time um, professor or lecturer. And, you know, when you mentioned about your first experience in Japan, I could really relate to that because my first time visiting Japan was back in 2013 when I was still in the last year of my high school. And like you, I was also completely ignorant of the language and the culture. And we were joining a, a one week, a two weeks um, volunteering program to Fukushima in Iwaki, Ken. And when I first landed in, in Japan, I saw all the kanji. So it felt a little bit familiar okay. because um, as a, an overseas Chinese, you know, I could read some of those characters, although they sometimes have different, very different meanings. <laughs> um, and I was very touched in the same way, you know, um, first with that sort of a beginner's mind when you arrive at a completely foreign land and mm -hmm. you're sort of an outsider, a gaijin and... Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when I arrived in Fukushima, in Iwaki, I met a lot of really wonderful Japanese people who came from all around Japan to volunteer and serve the people at the Iwaki Refugee Center, um, evacuation center. And so there was a sense of equality at that time, you know, whether you're a victim or whether you're a volunteer or whether as us as a foreigner there, we're all basically equal. And we're all there because we wanted to alleviate the suffering of the people and that we wish them to be happy and we wanted to learn something from that experience as well. And I think these are all the things that we're pursuing um, in our lives. Um, and so, wow, hitchhiking around Japan and, you know, getting food from, um, from both rich and, you know, poor people is amazing. I don't think you can do that anymore in today's Japan. I'm not sure. <laughs> because um, people are a little bit more um, skeptical and <laughs> and perhaps worry about <laughs> strangers. Um, wonderful. So maybe we can move on to, you know, a while ago I asked you about your Ikigai and basically I see a lot of your passion today, I, I would say in two different areas. One is in education 
and one is in the environment, I think. Am I right on that? Yes, well, I would say uh, uh, when you talk about education, I guess I see it as uh, I'm uh, learning and teaching. So uh, if you include the learning part, then I'll agree. Uh-huh. I wouldn't, I, I, I don't, I think uh, for me, there are lots of uh, fascinating questions and I'm always fascinated by text and uh, people and uh, situations. So I'm uh, still on a learning journey as well, but I'm also trying to help other people and uh, try to change some institutions with education. So uh, yeah, I, I think that that's a, a fair summary education and environment are two of the major things that I'm connected with. Mm -hmm. Since we touch on education, I want to ask your opinion about today's education system and also your ideal form of education, if possible. Well, for the education system, when we think of our expectations for institutions, we should uh, look at them historically. And so, for example, when uh, Japan was invading Asia, did universities oppose the invasion? And of course, the answer is no. And uh, when the U.S. is dropping atomic bombs on Japan, did the U.S. institutions oppose it or condemn it? And the answer is, of course, no. And you, so when we look at uh, extreme inequality and destruction and violence, in the past and in the present, we cannot cons we cannot uh, expect institutions to guide us ethically, and uh, if anything, they will move us toward power and toward silence. But when we look at the invasion of Asia, we do see that uh, some professors and students spoke up, mm -hmm. and when we look at uh, the U.S. invasion of Vietnam, for example institutions didn't resist it but many many students and many many teachers did so i think uh education you know is often about control and uh so I, many people lament the takeover of education by neoliberal capitalism in which all learning is uh, assessed by its ability its corporate value and humans are reduced to human resources and uh the whole point of education is to compete and uh, raise your position via via the people around you. And then there's a more and more, you know, standardized education so that you end up your whole life, if you're Japanese, measuring your English against others. So that used to go through high school. Now it goes all the way through university where you take TOEIC test and then into corporate life, you're constantly measured and calculated and evaluated. So I think these are some of the things that uh, I see as uh, dehumanizing and stripping people of their ability to form active, loving communities that uh, will deal with the real crisis that we're in, which requires the transformation of all of our major social and economic systems. So I think uh, Unlearning, as I mentioned before, is a big part of what we have to do, you know, unlearning the, the idea that uh, Europe is the center of the world and should always be the center of the world. And a lot of our liberal education is uh, also pushes us into disciplinary uh, expertise that sometimes 
can lead to myopia where you just focus on your part of the world or your corner and don't pay attention to what's being done down the street. I guess, uh, you know, the way that uh, refugees are treated in Japan should be an issue for all educators. But if you're specialized, you, you know, you don't have any time to study what's happening to refugees in Japan or something like that. So, so I think those are problems with education. And then uh, if we're going to think of a different kind of education, some of uh, my uh, people who inspire me would be people like Bell Hooks, uh, Black Women Educator in America, and Pablo Freire, uh, Brazilian Educator. And usually the idea is historically, what did it mean to get education before modern times? I think people wanted to know how to live how to be happy, mm -hmm. what it meant to be alive, to answer these kind of basic questions of what does it mean to be a good person and how should I live in the world and uh, how can I contribute to my community? Mm -hmm. And then this was always formed through loving human uh, relationships so that teachers and students first knew each other as humans and then as teacher and student, and they were kind of uh, involved in similar task. And so, which is, you know, often changing the parts of society, which were making, making people suffer or helping people escape from suffering and things like that. So this whole ethical component of education now, of course, is uh, largely stripped because there's no real economic value in teaching someone how to be a good person unless you can sell that as an app or something like that. So uh, my ideal form of education would be community-based education where teachers and students interact outside of the institution and get to know each other as complex people, not simply as teachers and learners who are kind of dealing with the boxes of knowledge, but as people who belong to a community together and they're in different stages of life with usually the teacher being somewhat older and the student being younger and they have their different roles to play, but they also see themselves in each other. That the students see themselves in their teachers and the teachers see themselves in their students. So they kind of uh, care about each other and teach each other, you know, how to care about each other and uh, inform part of yeah, the, what I think is uh, really uh, been broken down through modernity, which is our belonging to community. So what we often have now is you go to university and learn how ignorant your parents are. You know, that they didn't really, they don't know all this knowledge that you know, they don't know all the algorithms, they can't figure out uh, all the digital codes. Mm -hmm. And so then you kind of learn a little bit of contempt for them and the, the people of the past and you feel that you're lucky that you are living in this uh, wonderful wise present and you've escaped from the ignorance of the past and uh, you're happy to break free of that. And I think that uh, we need to reverse that in a lot of ways and realize that our present has been a present of a great deal of violence and alienation and, uh, and that the past offers us alternate ways of living in wisdom and so we don't want to romanticize the past 
but we don't want to automatically assume that we are somehow wiser than all the people who came before us. And that uh, for most of us, I think uh, our identities are always going to be somewhat rooted in where we are from and our sense of place and family and community. And so valuing that instead of rejecting it and uh, building on that instead of turning away from it, I think uh, are some things that uh, we need to uh, change uh, in our education system. Thank you, Charles. <clears throat> um, just to sort of summarize what you just said, I think first we can say that our education today is sort of outdated and that it's based on a model that was created to serve a particular purpose back in the 19th century, which is basically the Industrial Revolution and you know, making humans fit into their roles in the working society. And I think that no longer works today in many ways, especially that our economy has, has evolved. And this previous model leads to a sort of a specialization, disciplinary um, domain of, of studies. And that's also one of the reasons why I pursued a liberal arts education, because I, I think it touches on many, many different core areas that um, that opens up your lens to a bigger role, especially in the arts and humanities world. Also, I think the biggest problem um, which you've touched on about our education today is that it has lost sense of that end goal, which is to seek happiness and how to live a life with meaning. And instead, it's been teaching a lot of the means goal, which is like all the, the specific knowledge that um, that would enable you to function in a society but does not ensure your well-being. And so I think this echoes you know, words from the Dalai Lama that education today really has to refocus on the ethics component, which has been lacking in, in our modern education. They don't teach us how to empathize other, with other people. They don't teach us to understand um, how the social context and background of someone would shape him or her to think or act in a particular way. Um, yeah, well... Yeah, what I would say is uh, I I agree with you about the economic uh, shift, but what I would also say is there's always been a strong element of control in education, that mm -hmm. in some ways, uh, education was created uh, as part of the nation state to create national citizenry, who are loyal to the authority of the state, and that it continues to do that. And so this uh, this leads to a very strong sense of uh, nationalism, which you could call tribalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, of course, we see the problem of this because it doesn't. Our education isn't really designed to help us have uh, intergroup understanding. Instead, uh, it you know constantly focuses on our group or our nation, creating thicker and thicker walls, which are hard to surmount to actually solve uh, the major issues. And then I think uh, another type of control, I guess, is naturalizing systems of oppression. So when you buy the shirt that you're probably wearing now, we don't really think that we should be able to know what the supply chain is mm -hmm. and know where it was made or who made it, uh, under what conditions. So then we end up uh, participating and this oppression which is invisible to us and we are unable to see ourselves as oppressors 
So if we actually ever, by some freak chance, encounter the person making our shirt, who is living in this terrible condition, and maybe their family is starving and they have no clean water, and they're working in these terrible conditions, they might scream at us, why are you doing this to me? And we would just be completely shocked and say, well, I'm not doing anything to you. I, I, I'm not, uh, I've never done any, I don't even know you. And so we have this uh, kind of uh, inability to see how we uh, participate in this uh, extreme inequality and destruction of the planet. And our system is has evolved, our education has also evolved in media to make that invisible to us. And so it's very, very difficult to reconcile our idea of ourselves as good people with this uh, reality that we participate in systems of enormous violence and oppression. Very well said. <laughs> a lot of these problems I see played out in the Himalayas, especially. I'm not sure if you've read the book Ancient Futures, um, which I no, I haven't read it yet. Uh, okay, but I sh yeah, I should. Mm -hmm. Because um, one of the places we went to in Ladakh was the the rural nomadic villages that the students mm -hmm. um, are living, and they're all grouped into this one school because they all come from different villages. And their parents are out in the wild bringing yaks and, and pashmina goats around. And to, in order to give them a former education, the government built this, um, this school in the middle of all these villages. And all the students actually live in the school together as a community. And I, I saw both the beauty and the tragedy of this in play because the beauty in the sense that when I went there, the kids are very spiritual. They're very happy. And they took care of one another um, very well. But at the same time, they're receiving an education that is very distant from their culture and from their way of living. You know, they don't get the informal education that they used to receive as a as the son of a nomad or as a daughter of a nomad. Mm -hmm. And so I sometimes think, you know, when they when they read about those books and when they learn about biology or physics or something that's so distance away and they don't know where they could apply this knowledge. And, you know, I interviewed a few of the students and I asked them, what do they want to do in the future? And, and eight out of eight of them said that in the future, they, don't, they want to be a professional sports player. And, <laughs> and, and one more interesting fact is that they all want to return to their village in the future. And, oh, that's good. You know, I asked myself, why Why is that? That they want to be first sports player and why do they want to return? And they want to return because, first of all, they they realize that their village is where they love the most, where they felt happiest. But I worry for them at the same time that, you know, whether they could continue the livelihood of uh, of their parents since they're, they're not really living with them. Um, some of them are, of course. Um, and the other thing is that because they their favorite activity in the school was sports, it's like <laughs> playing cricket or playing ping pong, and so naturally they wanted to be a professional sports player. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's one interesting thing I, I saw over there, and 
yeah, you mentioned about nationalism and how people go around like zombies in our modern society without this actual knowledge or actual realization that you know what we buy, what we do actually has a direct or indirect impact on someone's life or on the environment. And I've seen a lot of people, you know, they've watched documentaries, say from Nat Geo or Discovery Channel mm-hmm. or on Netflix, and they know that it's better to be vegetarian or it's better not to buy the extra clothes from H&M. You know, they watch the documentary, they feel a sense of um, sympathy towards these people or may, they might have this feeling of wanting to do something for the environment, but they return to their daily life and they still automatically do all the other things that they do. They still go to the shopping mall and they still buy an extra clothes for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's the missing link between inspiring people to take action and between just thinking and knowing what's happening? Well, I think we need a community responses. And part of it is, you know, we're bombarded with these negative messages every day, you know, telling us buy a coat, buy a coat. So every time you look at your app, every time you turn on the TV, every time you read a magazine, you get this message, buy a, buy a coat, buy a coat, buy a coat. And then everybody around you is buying a coat. So then people, I think, rightly question, you know, what is the, what can I do and uh, what uh, difference does it make? And so part of it is this sense of powerlessness that whatever I do won't make any real difference. So I think uh, this is where, you know, being part of a community and building a community is important. If you are involved with even like 100 people, and let's say you're the, the non-buying code group, mm-hmm. then you support each other and uh, actually, you know, end up looking through your closet to, you know, get rid of coats you don't need and uh, other people can use them or something, or you just trade coats with each other. And you have this kind of group solution and you support each other in that solution. And then that uh, also has a kind of endurance in value. So I think uh, individual solutions, again, I think they show the breakdown of uh, participatory democratic communities and the sense that we can only do things as an individual. And then that, of course, when we look at the enormity of the problem, I think most of us realize that an individual solution will not ever be sufficient. But right now, we don't really have the communities that people can join easily that would allow them to shape their lives around this community. So that's why, you know, I think we need to build up in schools and in neighborhoods and in towns these alternate communities where people decide as a community they want to live differently. And then they do things in their community to make that way of living easier. For example, I, I don't, you know, I hate uh, plastic and all this disposable plastic. And uh, at one point, you know, I went into a convenience store thinking I'll buy something without plastic. And I realized there's not a single thing in the store that doesn't have plastic. So there's no choice. As soon as you walk through the door of the convenience store, you have to buy, you have to use disposable plastic. And so if you had a community, though, of course, you could create a store which is uh, plastic free. And so uh, I think uh, we we really need to focus on community response and uh, community mobilization, not simply 
converting individuals because as you point out, we are kind of herd animals and we, despite our belief that we are mavericks and living in a world independent and following our own individual ideals, mm -hmm. what we, I think, inevitably will find is that we're acting like the people around us in very fundamental ways. So I guess this is the Sangha, right? You have to, if you want to uh, be, uh, you know, a kind of a Buddhist uh, believer, you need a Buddhist believing community who will support your belief. You don't just uh, always stay on the mountain. You have to have these people who nourish your belief and uh, you nourish their belief as part of this community. So I think we need to awaken communities and have uh, community leaders. And then once you have the alternative, which is available to people and say, you don't have to do anything, just join us. And uh, everything is set for you, how to shop, how to eat, how to live. It's uh, we have, you know, a plan and you can join us. And this is what we're doing. It makes it, you know, so much easier. It doesn't have to be a dilemma every time you buy food or a dilemma every time you feel, think about what you should wear. So I think, yeah, that there's a, a danger now in focusing always on individual ethics and behavior rather than communal ethics and behavior. Wonderful. So um, I personally think, and that's also part of my presentation in Yonaoshi back in 2019, that you know, at that time I was looking from a very bottom-up approach and I thought that the, the missing link between this knowledge and action is that people are not spiritually transformed. Um, for myself as a, as a yogi and as someone who's transformed from um, ignorance about our actions and in relation to our impact and to the environment towards someone who's concerned about the environment, I find that transformation happen when I was able to tap into flow states, um, which is, you know, the title of this mm -hmm. podcast, you know, all of a sudden you realize that happiness comes not from material goods, but from, from inner uh, fulfillment of what you do. It comes from the experience, the experience of, of this bonding that I have with you, with my parents, with, um, you know, with plants, animals. And all of a sudden you realize that you don't need that um, that burger or that <laughs> that extra clothes in your closet and and so I came from a very bottom-up approach but then I realized at the same time I always switch between these two dilemma um, when I come back to Malaysia and I, I look at my community and living in this mansion or in this um, apartment that I'm living in right mm -hmm. now everyone every day around evening they would take a, a packet of um, their garbage and it has all kinds of things in it, you know, plastics, <laughs> food, and there's no place for us to decompose. And everyone would just throw it into the trash bin without knowing where it would go. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that, you know, even if I myself am doing something uh, from the bottom up, the 99 other people in this living in this apartment are still doing the same thing. And you don't really achieve any, anything on the greater scale. And so I think you're your proposal on awakening community is really really important and it takes courage for people to do it because i have no idea how i'm gonna start a community from scratch <laughs> right now <laughs> but i guess we we can work on our connections first and what you're doing with you now she is perhaps 
the first step in your um, on your side in starting a community. How has Yonaoshi um, unfolded in the past one or two years? I'm curious. Well, we had a very nice virtual Yonaoshi this uh, last year. Mm-hmm. And the, the student, and we're moving to bilingual model. So it's uh, Japanese and English more and more to try to reach more people in Japan mm-hmm. and also to uh, promote a bilingual model rather than an English model. And uh, so I think that's one major shift. I'm hoping now to involve more people from around the world to uh, to connect with environmental activists, especially in the global south, and try to convince them to, you know, people around, young people, particularly around students' age, so that uh, students can listen to these voices such as uh, the voices that you hear in Ladakh, I guess, you know, that kind of, I think, uh, knowledge and understanding is what's really, you know, it's uh, so hard for us to come across if we just uh, pay attention to normal media. And so for me, uh, every time I hear, you know, real, uh, you know, kind of indigenous speaker, I always feel that I'm uh, shocked into a new awakening <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that uh, if, uh, every, and so I seem to have a lot of uh, awakenings, uh, but, uh, and it, it's, uh, and it always reminds me of, you know, how important that is because our knowledge is dominated from, you know, this kind of corporate Eurocentric uh, scheme of things. So actually to hear, you know, uh, a woman, of color outside of uh, Western academia and outside of academia itself, uh, speaking about a community and what they're doing. I think it's inspiring. So I don't think we have to build communities from scratch, but what we have to do is connect with all of these communities that are doing these kinds of transformations mm-hmm. so that we don't feel that uh, it's quite as hopeless. I think when you're in your condominium in Malaysia, and you're only seeing these people dumping trash around you, then it can easily lead to despair. Right. But if you have some pipeline that, uh, or if we had a pipeline that would connect us to all of the hopeful, positive things being done around the world at small levels, then I think we could see that uh, there's a, a movement that is growing all the time, which is a rejection of this constant, you know, kind of disposal society. Mm-hmm. And then we could also, you know, maybe hold some seminars in our condominiums or something just to let people know that there's an alternate. Uh, so probably even just uh, what the, what do you call it? Like a, where you could have an organic, uh, the organic trash seems like it could easily set up a place to uh, have a compost been mm-hmm. they would reduce the level of trash but a lot of so if no one does it no one will think about it so i think but uh, again if you had a model of a condominium which had already set up a compost bin then that would make it much easier mm-hmm. so yeah i think uh, what we really need now is a stronger network of different activist groups and communities which are beginning to make the radical transition that we need. And I hope that uh, Yonaoshi will be part of that. 
to build these coalitions and introduce people to each other to create this kind of network. And I think, you know, once we belong to these networks, or the more we belong to them, they are good medicine against the sense of hopelessness or powerlessness. Mm -hmm. I guess it must have been hard to connect with people during this pandemic, you know, with everyone being virtual in, in different places. Um, I think it is hard, mm -hmm. but on the other hand, it's important grows. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, when you have a, when I have an interview with a student, uh, a few students, you know, they just break down crying and uh, you realize what this isolation does to, I think a lot of young people, especially, but maybe to everybody in different, uh, in different ways. Mm -hmm. So I think that, um, it makes the, the significance of reaching out to people all that more important. Right. That one, once we recognize that this uh, pandemic is isolating us and mm -hmm. making us lonely and uh, leading to depression, uh, right. then, then, you know, once you see that, then you really need to reach out to everybody, right? And say, <laughs> I'm here. How are you doing? What's going on? Yeah. And that, uh, so I, I think that in some ways the pandemic can remind us, you know, that we really are. We really long for community and to be connected with people. And uh, actually, you know, when we when we help other people, then we always are helping ourselves in that way. So when we reach out to someone, then we're reaching to ourselves as well. Right. Do you want to explain a little bit about the term yonaoshi um, and how you came up with it? Okay. Uh, well, at the end of the Edo period, they had these uh, iki or uh, peasant riots and. Uh, the Tokugawa regime was extremely uh, oppressive regime. So if you opposed uh, the system as an individual, you would uh, risk execution. So when, uh, when people rebelled against the system, it was all or nothing. Your whole village had to rebel at uh, once. And then the whole region had to rebel at once. And so with this, uh, they had an Ajanaika movement, which came out of a festival. And so people, the festival loosens everything up. That's what uh, festivals traditionally do is uh, the routines and uh, rules of society are loosened during this special festival period where you can drink and dance and have sex and do, do all kinds of wild things that you're not normally allowed to in your uh, routine life. And so this uh, festival would go, they would go on for weeks and then it turned into a giant uh, riot and uh, was you know part of the forces that led to the overthrow of the Bakufu and uh, ended basically the feudal system in Japan that people could sense was on its last legs. And so I think as a model, all of us can sense that uh, capitalism and uh, economies based on growth are destroying the planet. They were at war with the planet and that this system is going to collapse and is already collapsing. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's this festive aspect, which is when something collapses, of course, it uh, produces space for something new to come in. Mm -hmm. So collapse can, if you look at the collapse, of course, it's horrific and horrible. But if you envision what uh, is, can replace the collapse, then it's very uh, liberating and creative and powerful. So. I think that this, uh, so Yonaoshi is part of what was a considered a millenarian movements or these movements that 
the end of the world is here. And so now we have to recreate the world. So that's what uh, Yonaoshi means. And in, in order to do that, it requires this massive imaginative uh, work where we first envision the world that we want to live in mm -hmm. and how people will live. And then, and that's very beautiful. And we come together and celebrate and, you know, it involves music and partying, but also has this serious side and also is very communal and collective. And it is indigenous to Japan and shows that uh, Japanese are not uh, docile people who just follow their leaders, but that mm -hmm. they, have a, a history of people rising up and resisting oppression and uh, changing systems that are failing. So uh, those are a lot of the things that uh, appeal to me in the past is, uh, and, uh, and the concept itself of renewal of uh, that the world is, that we can remake the world and the world is always being remade. And so that, uh, what people, especially young people who often have not really been given the opportunity to think, engage, to really engage with their past, they often have the sense that nothing changes or nothing will change. Mm -hmm. When the opposite is actually true. The only thing that we can say with any certainty is that everything will always change. Right. That, uh, that we're in constant flux or flow, as you uh, point out. So once you realize the world is always changing in radical, unpredictable ways, then you can be part of the change once you have a vision of what kind of change you want. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think that the Yonaoshi opens up that kind of conversation for me. That's why I uh, decided on that uh, name. Nice. Um... It just occurs fortuitously right now that I'm watching this Ryoma Den, um, which talks about Sakamoto Ryoma, and I, I think Ryoma might be might be the very pivotal person behind starting this Yonaoshi and in <laughs> in connecting Satsuma and Choshu people, and you know as I recall the beginning of the drama when when Ryoma was. Um, was learning, was picking up his skill in uh, mm -hmm. the ken, the sword. And when he saw the black sheep, um, Perry's black sheep, he was in despair because <laughs> he took out his sword and he knew that his sword would never win against a black sheep. <laughs> and he went back to his dojo feeling, you know, disappointed and wanted to stop learning his sword. And his teacher, his sensei, the Chiba, Chiba sensei, was so and upset and angry that he told Ryoma to leave, right? And then Ryoma went in and thought about the problem and a week later he came back, he apologized and said he's gonna <laughs> come back as a student. And his sensei asked him like, so now do you still think that the sword would win against a ship in the battle? And, and Ryoma at that time said, you know, whether the Ken would win against the ship, um, the problem isn't with the sword. It depends on me. I am the solution on whether we can <laughs> we can defeat the foreign conquerors. Um, and so, in a similar way, today we have this analogy of the black sheep, not as a black sheep anymore, but as this systemic um, problem that we have in this world today. And we could either choose to to be controlled by it, 
or we could do something on our side and we all have this mm-hmm. potential unlimited potential that we don't know yet you know at that time Ryoma didn't know that mm-hmm. he would be able to um, unite <laughs> Satama and, and Choshu and he's always thinking and thinking about um, the solutions the possible solutions that might happen but again you know coming from a Taoist perspective and the yin and the yang and you know if we sort of look back right now and see what happened after Satsuma and Choshu took over the Meiji um, Empire. They were the one who militarized um, and, you know, proposed the colonization of Korea and mm-hmm. and went on to start the Second World War. So, and it's also tragic that, you know, Ryoma got assassinated because I think he's a person mm-hmm. who's, who's very much against um, war and against killing of people so i think things might have changed a little bit if he wasn't assassinated and if he played a, a role in in the meiji empire but it's all if which <laughs> uh, which would not happen well i think uh you know japan was kind of absorbed into this global system of imperialism and mm-hmm. uh capitalism so i think uh yeah recognizing you know that japan in some ways, Meiji was this uh, miracle of success, mm-hmm. but as you point out, it was uh, aggressive, both uh, at home, you know, it, there was an explosion in sex trafficking, and also women forced into textile mills that were very abusive, mm-hmm. and uh, poverty, which caused people to flee to places like Hawaii and Brazil, you know, from Okinawa and other places. So. I think uh, modernity is attractive and was always attractive in a lot of ways for these uh, kind of bright, shiny objects. But uh, if we want to see where Japan began to become uh, more and more unsustainable, that would also be the the shift. So that is also uh, a reason that I was kind of uh, looking back to the Edo period as uh, a model of when Japan was more had a more sustainable lifestyle. So, yeah, I think that uh, the the Japanese, just like most of us in the world, didn't really have any choice in uh, reject to reject modernity because modernity, you know, was uh, supported by these black ships that uh, threatened everybody eventually. And so it forced uh, everybody to become part of this global economy. And now we see that that is, uh, again, destroying the planet and also making people extremely unequal. You know, we have this level of inequality, which is hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, you know, what we really need now is massive uh, resistance to this uh, new, to now th- to awaken to what modernity has been and has become. And one way of doing that, I think, is to look for these models outside of modernity, such as indigenous lives, that uh, have preserved indigenous ways, mm. and then also in uh, past ways of that humans organized themselves and uh, grew. And of course, I think, uh, of course, there's uh, there are technological fixes and changes and shifts that also will be part of the solution. But uh, technology will also be, threatens to be one of the major problems. So, because technology right now is still deployed for profit. So there's no real reason to believe that technology will save us 
uh, as it hasn't saved us in the last 200 years. It's just uh, accumulated power for the people who already have power. So I think right. we, we, we should be skeptical of, uh, of a kind of magic science that mm -hmm. will get us out of the problem. Mm -hmm. And one interesting psyche that I notice in people among the Edo period is that they, they always have these big dreams and they wanted to leave a mark in history. They wanted to leave a legacy in history. But in today's world, most people are only thinking about how to how to get a job, you know, especially in Japan today. All, all the students, when I was studying in Waseda during my senior year, they were all busy doing shukatsu. And <laughs> they were missing classes and um, they want to get a job. They want to marry, settle down. And, and sort of that's the life that, that most people today are um are pursuing in japan and all around the world i would say and i want to come back to this idea of the indigenous wisdom a little bit because i think my biggest takeaway from indigenous wisdom is this idea of a was an idea but um, a practice of a circular economy that was very natural to them you know and i think perhaps it's also because there were no plastics in indigenous mm -hmm. society when you don't have plastics, you have to think of all other kinds of way to pack your food or to do other things that all comes from nature directly, whether, you know, getting leaves and wrapping up your food or, mm. and all these things tend to decompose much easily um, compared to plastics. And in Ladakh, when we go there, I ask them, you know, in, in the nomadic village, they don't have a recycle center mm. and even the truth is that even in recycle centers around the world, there's still a limit to what you can recycle. There's still a, a bunch mm -hmm. of plastics that eventually couldn't be recycled and had to be trashed somewhere. And their solution is to just burn the plastics. And they still don't know that burning plastics would, would cause cancer and, and all kinds of health problems. And at the same time, I couldn't offer them a solution. You know, I was talking with a, mm -hmm. a student, a participant in our group who runs a recycle um, center in Malaysia. And we were actually planning on bringing like a, a machine to compress all the plastics into um, recyclable mm -hmm. chunks that we could send to Delhi to recycle in the future. But of course, with the pandemic, things have been a bit difficult. And oh. right. Yes, uh, well, I think plastic has uh, obviously been one of the really horrible things to take place since uh, the in the post-war era and uh, I guess in a larger scale just the idea of trash I think in uh, you know indigenous community the idea you don't there's nothing to be thrown away because everything is useful and can be reused so I think uh, yeah there's an interesting group in Hokkaido which uh, you know has some songs about motainai uh, and things like that I guess that <laughs> I think uh, in Japanese culture as well in the past, I think especially, uh, well, after Meiji, but then really in the post-war, this uh, disposal society mm -hmm. takes off of consuming and disposing constantly. So yeah, breaking free of that and moving back to the cyclical, cyclical economy that you're describing mm -hmm. is certainly, I think, uh, essential for from every perspective. Mm -hmm. Before we end, I would like to ask you just a, a few more, you know, could be some rapid questions. 
Okay. Um, first one. Um, what is your relationship with your students like? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I want my students to jo to be uh, community with other students, especially. So a lot of uh, what you saw in your class and what I do with a lot of classes is try to have people be involved in collective projects that take them outside of the university often to interact with people outside the university. Mm -hmm. So one of my relationships is, I guess, is a facilitator, helping students to belong and learn how to respect each other. And uh, sometimes if you go into a classroom, what you notice is when students talk, other students don't listen. They are, they are really willing to listen when the teacher talks. But when another student talks, they don't really value that person's idea as much. So actually making students feel that other students are important and that they should uh, they can listen and learn from each other is mm -hmm. one of the things that I want to do as a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, I think that uh, through our controlled uh, kind of mind-numbing education, people have naturally formed a, a passive resistance to that control. So one of the things that I try to do is to give students choice and have honest discussions with them so that they will enjoy learning and find uh, joy in learning and not see it as something that takes away from their freedom, but that actually increases their freedom and power. And I hope that, you know, that I uh, convey a sense to them of caring and that they, when they have problems or when they have something joyful happen, that they will want to share it with me. Mm -hmm. And that uh, for me, the first part of uh, the teaching usually involves some kind of what I would call an intervention, like let's right. try to break out of our rituals mm -hmm. and then let's not waste your time because if you're youth, youthful this is the time where you're most creative and can achieve the most so i know that you know so students shouldn't really be spending 90 minutes each week of their youth sitting waiting for a class to end so that's a terrible way to waste your youth so let's uh, and also you know i don't want to waste my uh, time on earth either Mm -hmm. So let's try to do something valuable that we together sense is valuable together. So I think having these conversations about education and uh, recognizing some of the negative rituals that people fall into mm -hmm. and then considering together possibilities for different types of learning, which is more meaningful, are the ways that I try to relate to students. Mm -hmm. And some of Charles Sensei students are among the most inspiring and action-oriented students that I've ever seen. You know, including Aika, who's really passionate about the comfort women issue, and I think she's doing another. She's I think hosting another conversation through this EAS with a uh, recently someone in Japan who produced a documentary about comfort women, and also Kenya. You know, Kenya, the Indonesian student who. I often see her on Instagram going, talking about some of the sensitive issues. And I think she joined those protests. Um, what do they call it? Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion, yes, group in, in Japan. Oh, that's uh, great. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 with Kanye, yeah. Yeah, she has been involved. 
I think those you and uh, Aika and Kanya, they all all of you passed through my class, which was wonderful. <laughs> I wouldn't. So I think you all of you were already doing amazing things before I met any of you. So I wish I could take some credit for uh, the way that you're all active and everything. But I think uh, I was just happy to get to uh, be with you and part of that journey. But all of you are on these journeys long before I met you. And so it's just been nice to be a small part of it. <laughs> no, I believe you were sort of like the the engine or the propeller that further <laughs> pushes us forward in, in, in many ways. And I'll just ask you three questions before we end this. Um, the second one is that, you know, is there something that I should ask you that I didn't know enough to ask today? Uh, I don't think that there's anything that you don't know enough to ask. Uh, since we're not really talking about literature, we haven't talked about this very much, but uh, I think one of the reasons that it's that I approach some of these problems through literature mm -hmm. is, uh, because it creates a certain humility and uh, ability to abide with ambiguity mm -hmm. because there are never any answers to how to read a text or to solve a text, which can never be solved. You always just raise questions about what they could mean and might mean and ways that they might be interpreted. And there's never any final answer it's just a kind of speculation and thinking about it, a very complex code which has been designed. But the person who's designing it is also part of a design that is working on that person. So uh, some of the things in the design are unintended and unconscious. So when we decipher the design, then it uh, it forces you, I think, to be able to reside with ambiguity. Mm -hmm which means that uh, whatever you try to do in the world, you could be wrong. And whatever your way of understanding is, we could be off course so that. Uh, so I think there's a there's a certain danger in uh, that you see around the world today with people who have uh, over confidence or surety about the answers that they've arrived at, mm -hmm. who uh, fall into a dangerous kind of dogmatism. So I think that the reason I don't just teach history or ecological crisis, but also teach uh, the literature mm -hmm. is uh, part of it is the literature engages you in this intellectual struggle of really fascinating people. And you can see in through the art, their expression and their struggle. And then you can connect that to your own struggle and the struggle never has an answer. It never really ends. It's a kind of struggle with yourself and with society, which is always more complex than we can ever fully understand our own motivations and things like that. So I think uh, that this part of education, of realizing that our own ability to understand the world mm -hmm. is just a, so is so minute and mm -hmm. uh, so and that that I think uh, I think you have that from uh, your own kind of uh, specific type of uh, religious spiritual training as well. But I think this uh, humility and uh, awareness of uh, limitation of individual kind of understanding or wisdom is uh, 
is also important in terms of wanting to always try to learn more and listen to others mm -hmm. and understand things that we don't understand. So this idea that, you know, everybody can always teach us something new that we haven't thought about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like when we were taking your class on the politics of translation, when we were reading some of the literature about Moriogai or Natsume Soseki, you were sort of like having a conversation with the author of the book. Um, even though he or she doesn't really respond to whatever you ask him. <laughs> but it's really, it opens the door to critical thinking. And when you have a group of students together discussing about what they thought the author might mean or meant in that situation, it can open up to debates and even to different perspectives that could change your own limited parochial view of something. And yeah, well, I think that class, because there are people from different parts of the world, also, you know, men and women, and sometimes uh, a little bit of class variation also, that students, each student comes up with very different readings. And yeah. so that's always exciting to see, you know, how people read the text in ways that I, I would never be able to, you know, have this kind of reading. So for me, it's always fascinating to see how people especially people who really care about the text and read it very carefully how they come up with uh, ideas that uh, i know would never occur to me ever so that opens up a new way of uh, thinking about something which i felt i understood mm -hmm. to a certain degree so yeah i think uh, i enjoy those kinds of uh, discussions of uh, and see them as moments of discovery thank you charles um since we touch on literature right now, I just want to prep our audience, you know, for the next episode that will be, um, that I'm hoping to interview you again in, on this okay. podcast. And do you want to, you know, introduce just a few of the, the books, your favorite books, so that if they, if they have some time, they could go through it or read a little bit about it, they could have a context of, of this literature, the next episode. Uh, well, you mentioned Lucian and Diary of a Madman. Mm -hmm. And I think Lucian was uh, living at a moment of crisis for China, and he'd spent time in Japan learning yeah. Japanese. And mm -hmm. he he uh, talks about uh, being in a Japanese classroom, watching a Chinese man being beheaded as other Chinese look on kind of apathetically as a preface to his original stories. Mm -hmm. and how this changed his uh, determination to be a doctor and instead made him into a writer who was uh, looking at uh, after people's souls rather than their physical bodies. Right. And uh, so uh, in Diary of a Madman, he basically reinterprets all of Chinese history, mm -hmm. but he does so in a way which is so radical that he anticipates that his readers will reject it. And so then he... Uh, conveys it through the eyes of an insane person. And I think uh, when we see certain uh, kind of uh, very disturbing things about our societies, there's a limit of how much you can actually describe it or tell about it before people will close off mm -hmm. and see you as extreme. And uh, so Lucian, I think really touches upon that, you know, that he he recognizes that there's certain things that are outside of the realm of uh, legitimate discourse, 
-hmm. And once you go into that realm, then you become a member of the insane or the mad. And so I think uh, what is happening now with the climate and the environment, when we actually try to describe it accurately, then you uh, become mad. Like mm -hmm. uh, if you actually say what is happening on the earth accurately, then people will immediately say you're extremist yeah. or uh, that you are outside of uh, what they are willing to tolerate or accept as reality. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, he's uh, one of the teachers for me. And then I guess uh, Ango, Sakaguchi Ango, right. a famous Japanese uh, writer who also was from Toyo University, but he, uh, he stayed in Tokyo during the air raids when Japan's defeat was certain, but nobody could nobody could say that Japan was going to lose the war this last year of the war. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, this last year of the war is an amazing time in Japan where all Japanese realized they were going to lose the war, but they had to continue to act as if they believed they were going to win the war. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where we are also. Yeah. We, we realize we're at war with the planet and we can never win that war, but we're not allowed to say I don't want to work. This work is killing the planet. Mm -hmm. I want to stop our participating in this economy. And then after the defeat, he wrote the amazing essay called On Decadence about re recovering our humanity and uh, becoming human again. And so this uh, On Decadence essay, I think, is uh, wonderful for allowing us to fall away from our ritual of behavior and uh, and recover our full humanity of what it means to really just be a person with human desires mm -hmm. and to reconnect with those ba very basic human desires and see how this kind of economic code, which changes, turns us into a global resource of uh, constant competition and struggle and fear uh, actually destroys uh, our humanity. So I think uh, Ango is uh, very inspiring in that way. And there, there are a few others, but I'll stop there with those two, maybe. Okay, sure. Um, I think the other, just a few more that you've mentioned is like Medoruma Shun, um, yeah. Higuchi Ichiyo, um, Tigna Han's work, Bell Hooks, Martin yes. Luther King, and Angela Davis on the Palestine issue. Um, okay, thank you. Yeah, well, let me just say one word about Medoro Machun because I think uh, so. Medoro Machun, you know, his uh, activacy won the uh, Akutagawa show for this uh, short story droplets, uh, Suiteki. Mm -hmm. And the, the main thing I wanted to say about him is he doesn't want to come to the mainland because he knows Japanese will never really recognize themselves as oppressors of Okinawans. That uh, the identity of Japanese itself prevents the recognition, the ability of Japanese to recognize themselves as oppressors of Okinawans. Mm -hmm. And so for them to recognize themselves as oppressors means they would have to actually restructure their identity of who they are or what it means to be Japanese. Yeah. And I think this is uh, one of the major crises that uh, many of us confront is that uh, our identity itself is built into systems of oppression mm -hmm. and to recognize ourselves as an oppressor or colonizer 
means we have to dismantle our very identity. So and this is one of the things that is often said about whiteness and white people, that, uh, that to be white, as soon as you adopt the identity or say, or kind of embrace, I am a white person, that is not a neutral identity. It's already based on domination. <laughs> so to stop dominating people or oppressing them, you really have to begin to dismantle what whiteness is or what it means to say you're a white person. And this is uh, extremely challenging for us. <laughs> and uh, I think uh, this is, uh, that's why I think, you know, people like people who write from these outsider perspectives, such as Medora Mashun or James Baldwin in the US, uh, like a, a black writer who can of uh, launch these accusations against their oppressors, which are embedded in their identity, they're very, you know, they're just really critical to listen to those voices mm -hmm. and try to understand how we can take these baby steps and uh, rethinking what our, what we want our identity to be or to, in some ways, resist identity altogether. Mm -hmm. Because identity, of course, is stable and static and goes against what you're talking about this flow so if we can uh, loosen up our identity mm -hmm. and uh, abandon parts of it that yeah. may open us to other people and voices right in fact one of the criteria in getting into flow according to Mihai, who came out with this term flow to describe people you know when they're fully involved in an activity that they enjoy and they forgot about themselves and they're just uh -huh. absorbed in that task you know the criteria into getting flow is of course to forget this identity of yourself because if you're overly concerned about how you look or um on whether you're doing it right or wrong if you're constantly thinking then you wouldn't be able to get into flow <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> yeah i guess so this is like a cook ting or whatever and uh, the taoism like the the cook who cooks mm -hmm. without really thinking about cooking yeah <laughs> um what is your call for action today uh, my call for action would be my own sense is that we should all have uh, our climate emergency literacy mm -hmm. so i think uh, we all have this uh, exaggerated sense of knowledge of especially negative information so People, for example, where I come from in the South, they think they know about slavery because they've heard about slavery all their lives. Hmm. But when you ask them, well, describe what slavery was or how it operated, they're surprisingly ignorant. Hmm. And I think many of us have this same exaggerated understanding of climate change and ecological crisis, which is that we hear about it in the news mentioned. So we sense that we know what's happening but so I think uh, the first step would be, uh, which is the, also this uh, kind of uh, call of Extinction Rebellion, which is tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, especially the ecological, uh, the collapse of our biosphere, unfortunately, is unfolding around the world. And we only see it in quite uh, uh, isolated spots. But when we look at the collapse globally then we it's much more uh, severe and uh, concerning so i think that uh, 
first of all, understanding the true extent of the crisis through, you know, more research and dedicating some time mm -hmm. to really trying to understand what is the actual threat that we live on. And then, uh, and then also, I think equally important would be finding the groups mm -hmm. which are responding and uh, looking at the alternatives which are being put forward and the solutions. Uh, so I think uh, both finding out what the real threat is and then uh, connecting with different people and groups which are mm -hmm. offering alternatives to moving in different ways would be uh, my call for action. Wonderful. Um, so thank you very much, um, Charles, for coming on the show today. I'm sure um, we'll be doing another episode in the future. And I really wish that Yonaoshi would grow and inspire even more similar movements around the globe. I'm sure I'll bring some of these values that you mentioned as well as this, the spirit of Yonaoshi when I go to, hopefully, the Tsinghua University this coming August. So, Well, I hope yeah. you'll start your own uh, Yonaoshi uh, uh, conference there, even though you don't have to call it uh, Yonaoshi, you can call it Echo Flow Conference and, <laughs> uh, and uh, being your... Uh, but I think, uh, th yeah, these uh, breaking out of institutional confinements and being, bringing people across institutions and across countries and uh, communities together for dialogue, I found uh, extremely inspiring and uh, has often changed fundamentally my way of thinking and acting and teaching. Mm -hmm. So I hope that uh, I, I think you will be in, in a position. I think you have uh, a network and uh, ability to do that. So. I have a lot of uh, very high expectations for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Charles. I'm looking forward to uh, to to either participating or uh, either as a at least as a member of the audience of uh, some of these uh, great uh, events that uh, and movements which I expect you'll be leading. Thank you, Charles. I'll do my best.